The products discussed in this podcast are only available in the United States. Welcome to our podcast, The Tactical Take, where we discuss our thoughts on the markets, highlighting the opportunities and risks that we see in the current environment, and how we're positioned the tactical sleeves of the Natixis models to reflect this backdrop. My name is Jack Janisiewicz, Portfolio Manager and Lead Portfolio Strategist with Natixis Investment Manager Solutions, and I lead the Natixis Investment Manager Solutions Investment Committee. Inflation, the labor market, the Fed, a liquidity suck, and narrow market breadth, all the hot topics for the month. And as always, we'll dissect these and offer up our take on each one. So let's get right into it. The disinflationary process continued in April as the deceleration broadened out. March CPI came in smack in line with consensus estimates, with both headline and core advancing four-tenths of 1% month-on-month. This left the year-on-year prints at 4.9% for headline, while core dropped from 5.6% to 5.5%, as expected. And while the whispers seemed to be anticipating a much hotter print, this certainly wasn't it. And more importantly, under the surface, the details were even more encouraging. Disinflation is broadening out. While the headline and core figures may have seemed like a disappointment with both month-on-month rates picking up sequentially from March, the truth was anything but. In last month's massive decline, the headline CPI dropped only one-tenth of 1% in April to 4.9%. But that marks the first time we've seen a forehandle on the headline figure since April of 2021. The really encouraging news came on the core front, however. The year-on-year figure may have only ticked down 10 basis points back to 5.5% from February, but the details painted a much more optimistic picture. After a few months of deviating from wholesale price indices, used car prices finally surged higher in April, rising nearly 4.5%. So how is this optimistic? Remember that the month-on-month figure for core was 0.4%. The sheer fact that core CPI printed in line with expectations despite used car prices contributing over 11 basis points to that core number is the reason to be optimistic. Used car prices alone accounted for more than a quarter of the monthly increase in core CPI. Why the optimism? Because it demonstrates that the broadening in the disinflation process is underway. Not only are used cars not an item all Americans repeatedly purchase and feel, but the wholesale prices that suggested a coming rise are now pointing to future weakness once again, and used vehicle prices are likely to moderate even further as new vehicle production continues to recover. Expect used car prices to flip from a headwind to a tailwind for inflation. And the good news didn't stop there. The Fed remains keenly focused on supercore services as a read-through to structural inflationary pressures. Recall that supercore services is defined as service inflation, less food and energy, as well as shelter costs, and that's used as the Fed's proxy for wage growth. And Supercore services rose just one-tenth of one percent, marking the slowest pace since the surprise deflationary print of July 2022 and in line with November of 2021. While there were concerns that last month's deceleration in shelter costs was a head fake, it seems that the trend of slowing housing costs is indeed finally underway. Shelter advanced a half a percent, the slowest pace since April of 2022, although this was helped by falling hotel prices. Excluding hotels, rent of shelter and owner's equivalent rent, the key components to shelter inflation, picked up modestly but remained well below the peak witnessed back in September of 2022. It won't be a straight line south for shelter costs, but the trend of cooling housing is finally here, and that's a big one. 
While it's still early, Supercore services are finally beginning to moderate, and that is taking pressure off Chair Powell to push rates higher. The most recent release of the Senior Loan Officer Survey confirmed what Powell alluded to in previous remarks, that financial conditions had tightened modestly in the wake of the banking turmoil. But, as we've noted in previous commentaries, that tightening has been underway for nearly two years now. It's nothing new. And critically, given the strength of the consumer and corporate balance sheets that are flush with cash, the impact from this tightening on growth is likely far lower than many assumed. We'd also note that despite lingering fears in the banking system, recent volatility in certain regional bank names appear to stem more from some speculative attacks and not from fundamental deterioration. Market caps for these names have shrunk impressively, making them easier to influence through shorts or outright selling. Start putting downside pressure on these stock prices and depositors get nervous that something worse might be in the offing. They then pull their deposits, which then may be interpreted as the start of a further bank run, which then invites further selling and shorting of shares. This perpetuates a vicious doom loop, and it's easy to see how prices can violently shift lower. A move not necessarily driven by fundamentals, but rather through a knee-jerk reaction to stock price movement, which may or may not be representative of the true underlying fundamentals. Sorry, got a little bit off track here, so back to inflation and the Fed. What do we make of the outlook for further rate hikes? Some residual uncertainty paired with meaningful improvement in supercore services strengthens the case for a likely pause in June. And this is where we think the market remains offsides with respect to pricing the path of policy rates. The CPI data was certainly encouraging, but core CPI remains far too high despite considerable improvements likely on the horizon. Importantly, recall, the Fed's inflation target is basically with respect to PCE, and given the differences in methodology and scope, there is reason to believe that PCE may remain a bit stickier relative to CPI trends. In other words, we're seeing progress, but the job's certainly not done yet. Indeed, rates markets are pricing the probability weighted distribution of outcomes from no landing to no soft landing to a hard landing, but those probabilities likely need to be revised meaningfully. Real incomes are rising as the labor market remains robust and deflation within utilities and food and disinflation more broadly bolsters consumption. Housing is inflecting higher as rates stabilize and the market adjusts to a new equilibrium. And the inventory drawdown appears to be concluding at last, setting the stage for a restocking cycle in the quarters to come. This certainly doesn't sound like an imminent recession justifying 125 basis points of cuts by June 2024. The disinflation process continues as the soft landing remains an underappreciated outcome. But what about the labor market? May payrolls rose by 339,000, blowing the doors off the consensus estimates of 195,000 job ads. But despite the strong headline print, wages and hours worked were soft. Good night, Irene, Mr. Phillips Curve. Adrian Adonis just slapped the sleeper hold on you. Average hourly earnings advanced just three-tenths of 1%, while April's warmer 0.5% print was revised down to 0.4%. Hours worked also declined, finally normalizing after the pandemic-induced surge. In short, the labor market continues to normalize back to the pre-COVID trends. Just a few short weeks ago, the bears thought their moment had finally come as the doubly resilient labor market was finally beginning to show the effects of those long and variable lags. Continuing claims were drifting higher, and initial claims suddenly spiked. But that rise in jobless claims proved to be the result of fraudulent claims here in Massachusetts, which have since been revised away. 
And now yet another blowout jobs day on June 2nd, the 14th consecutive beat relative to consensus estimates. Tough day for the bears and the economic forecasters alike. It wasn't just the headline number that should concern those in the imminent recession camp, though. Private payrolls were driven once again by service sectors with strong gains in education and health services, professional business services, and leisure and hospitality. Even retail and transportation added jobs despite all the fears of slowing goods consumption. And temporary help, which tends to be a reliable leading indicator, even eked out an ad of 8,000 jobs after a few months of modest declines. On the goods front, manufacturing job losses were marginal, but the eye-opener continued to be construction, adding 25,000 jobs as housing begins to reaccelerate and manufacturing construction spending surges. Prime age employment, and those are the ages between 25 and 54, that continues to be one of the bright spots in many of this labor report. The prime age participation rate now stands at the highest level since January 2007, while the participation rate for women just hit an all-time high of 77.6%. Pretty impressive. Signs of an imminent recession? You don't just go from the current pace of job creation to a recession overnight without a sudden stop. And that sudden stop? Wasn't that supposed to come from the banking crisis turmoil? Oops, maybe not. We do raise a bit of caution with the report, however. First, the response rate on the establishment survey plummeted to 54.7%. The last time we saw a similarly low response rate was last November, when we saw massive revisions, particularly to the wage figures, upon the second release. That's not to say a similar revision is headed our way next month, but something to be mindful of nonetheless. In addition, the April JOLT survey had some interesting nuggets of information regarding the strength of the labor market. While the headlines always focus on job openings, and specifically the ratio of openings to unemployed workers, the real informational content in the one-line item that we prefer to narrow in on is actually in the quits rate. Powell and company have fixated on the vacancy to unemployment ratio as an indicator of labor market tightness and wage pressures but that has historically been a poor indicator for those purposes. Quits, on the other hand, have been far more reliable. You only quit your current job if you're optimistic about your prospects for finding a new one. A pretty good sentiment indicator for the robustness of the labor market. The quits rate has rapidly returned to pre-COVID levels, and with it, wage pressures are waning despite still robust job ads. More evidence of a soft landing for the labor market. So to summarize, while there's potentially some noise that will be cleaned up in subsequent revisions, this report simply doesn't show anything that suggests the recession is imminent. The labor market remains rock solid and continues to show signs of normalization back to essentially an evolved state of the 2019 labor market. With Fed officials having seemingly cemented a skip for the June meeting, this report likely doesn't change anything. Despite the strength of the print, the details continue to provide fodder for the doves as wage and inflation pressures ease without the labor market crumbling. The economy continues to grind along on a gradually slowing trajectory, the perfect recipe for a soft landing. The tensions between the Fed's stronger view of the economy and the market's weaker view appears to have alleviated as rates markets have done much of the heavy lifting to reprice the higher for longer strategy of the past few weeks. And as long as the data continues to print in the middle of that range, we're finally in an environment where the Fed doesn't matter. So let's pull this together on the inflation backdrop and labor market dynamics. What does this mean for the Fed? 
Regarding the outlook for interest rates, the markets repriced its expectations, looking for no cuts by year-end and moving towards a slightly better than 50-50 odds for a July hike. While there is ample cover for the Fed to take a pause at the June meeting, a pause should not be conflated with an end to the hiking cycle. And it certainly is not the precursor to a subsequent rate cut either. As the Fed has repeatedly stressed, there are data-dependent, and we take them at their word. With core inflation seemingly stuck at 5.5%, the labor market remains firm and consumer spending resilient. It's hard to envision a shift by the Fed to outright rate cuts. If anything, expect them to pause and leverage a higher-for-longer mantra. But additional hikes in the future cannot be ruled out should the economic data continue to remain resilient. Simply put, the Fed's work's not done. The last piece worth touching on, the two things that we keep hearing about from the bears— the Treasury's upcoming liquidity drain, and the narrow market breadth. With the conclusion to the latest debt ceiling saga here, the bearish narrative has begun to pivot over the last few weeks. Despite the market's resilience, a massive liquidity drain is coming as the Treasury issues debt to rapidly fill their coffers. This issuance will suck liquidity out of the system with no incremental bid, Markets will have nowhere to go but lower. It's no wonder this narrative has gained traction. It's simple, intuitive, and bearishness sells. It all boils down to the Treasury spending and financing. In other words, flows into and out of the Treasury's general account, or TGA, at the Fed, the Treasury's checking account. In theory, reducing the balance sheet of the TGA is a source of liquidity as the government disperses those funds into the economy, while the rising TGA balance represents a reduction in liquidity. As a result of the debt ceiling issue, the Treasury has been unable to continue issuing debt to fund itself. While you can't issue more debt, you pay with what you have on hand, and that means the Treasury runs down its TGA balance, which now sits at just under $50 billion. And that means now that the debt ceiling has finally been raised, the Treasury will unleash a flood of T-bill supply to rebuild the TGA balance, which means a massive liquidity drain that will drag the markets lower. Sounds great, but the problem is that's not quite how it works. The transmission mechanism is a bit different. The Treasury drawing down the TGA means funds are being directly dispersed into the public's hands or to some investors as maturing debts paid off. That means some of those funds are finding a home into financial markets while others are circulating into the real economy. At the margin, depending on who is the recipient of the funds from the reduction in the TGA balance, we could see improved spending power in the real economy or increased credit or transactional liquidity and vice versa. But the key is that these effects are marginal. So let's set aside the effects on the real economy and consider the implications on savers and investors. Are investors really piling more money into equities just because the TGA balance is falling as outlays and maturities outpace new issuance? Are maturity payments coming from treasuries now being dumped into AI stocks? Or are they likely getting rolled into other high-quality, liquid-yielding assets? It comes down to risk appetite. Does how the Treasury manage its checking account balances really matter to investor risk appetite? Only to the extent that some think it matters. But let's think about the reverse. Issuance outpacing spending and maturities driving the TGA balance higher. The effects on the market and the real economy depend on where the financing is coming from. And the sources of that funding are not static over time. Can it matter for asset prices? Sure. But that effect is marginal compared to risk appetite. And beyond that, it's largely a function of whether you feel confident in your own financial standing and seeing others around you making money. Theory is great, but in practice, the effects are minuscule and really only matter to the extent that some think it matters. 
beyond that, just like with the Fed and QE and QT, the actual effect is limited. So will a wave of bill issuance derail the equity market? Unlikely. In fact, increased bill issuance is exactly what we need. While quantitative tapering continues in the background, and funny how no one cares about QT anymore after throwing fits over how it would destroy the world, there's still over $2.2 trillion sitting in the reverse repo facility at the Fed. That's $2.2 trillion in search of yield while big banks shun deposits via non-competitive cash yields and limited bill supply gives those money markets no other choice but to park those assets back at the Fed in exchange for the lower target of the Fed funds rate plus five basis points. The Treasury's most recent recommended financing schedule suggests over $1 trillion in total net bill supply in the second quarter and third quarter, with roughly $478 billion coming in second quarter and an additional $574 billion in third quarter. To be sure, that's a large sum of money, but that's still only half of the excess cash being parked in the reverse repo facility searching for short-dated paper. Reverse repo facility balances are likely to be the vacuum that sucks up the coming wave of supply, not investors selling their AI names to scoop up T-bills. The TGA will indeed be refilled, but the impacts to both the markets and the real economy are likely to be marginal at best. It's not a liquidity drain for the market, nor is it for the real economy. Draining excess cash that's been doing nothing for nearly two years? Why should this matter all of a sudden now? Can markets go lower? Sure, it's been quite a run for tech so far, but let's stop with the liquidity drain argument. That's just not how any of this works. The other market we keep hearing about from the bears, the narrow market breadth, the few names leading the market higher. Define market breadth however you want. New highs versus new lows, advanced decline lines, percentage of issuers above their 200-day moving averages, pick your indicator. While the charts continue to make the rounds on social media and financial news outlets, very few actually put hard statistics up against the narrative. While we can argue back and forth on the issue, some will find evidence that markets tend to perform poorly with whatever metric they are using the breath for, there are plenty of others that confirm just the opposite. The data that we have surveyed tends to show that more times than not, breath expands to catch up to the market rather than prices catching down to match breath. Intuitively, we would argue that breath is a function of sentiment. If you're bearish, would you be investing in the broad market that includes highly speculative names? Or would you fall back on a handful of safe mega cap stocks? As sentiment improves, more participants get invested in the market, and this helps broaden out breadth. Based on our sentiment metrics, we're hard-pressed to make the case that sentiment has flipped full risk on. In fact, we're still quite far from that. And history shows that bull markets tend to be led by smaller percentages of names. But let's not let a good bearish narrative get in the way of the facts. Diverging breadth and poor forward returns become obvious in hindsight, just like those calls screaming that overstretched valuations ultimately lead to a market drawdown. Trying to make these calls in real time, that's a mugs game. You can attempt to call tops with these indicators, and these calls can prove to be wrong in months, quarters, or years too early, leaving one to miss out on significant returns. Divergences can last for many months, all the while equities continue to move higher. Empirical evidence simply does not corroborate poor market breadth and weak future returns. What it likely does is frustrate those who do not want outsized exposure to a handful of names. And those who continue to peddle that bearish narrative, that simply has not played out. And we very well could see a broad rotation coming as investors take profits on the AI tech-related names and rotate into the battered segments of the markets like small caps, energy, and financials. We'll be watching. So what do we do this month? 
Not much. We continued to favor U.S. large caps in a tilt towards growth. On the fixed income side, we still favor credit over rates and are looking at a barbell strategy to earn carry and short-dated fixed while picking up duration on the long end of the curve. To wrap up this podcast, The Tactical Take, this is Jack Chianasiewicz. Hope you enjoyed the commentary, and thanks for listening. Important information. For listeners outside the United States, Natixis Investment Managers Distribution and Service Groups include Natixis Investment Managers SA, Luxembourg, Natixis Investment Managers International, France, and their affiliated distribution and service entities. These entities conduct any regulated activities only in and from the jurisdictions in which they are licensed or authorized. Their services and the products they manage are not available to all investors in all jurisdictions. For additional information and important podcasts disclosures for listeners outside the U.S., please consult imnatixis.com slash intl slash podcasts and other media. Further, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and not necessarily those of Natixis investment managers. These views were provided as of the date of recording and will not be revised. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute investment advice or an offer to buy or sell a financial product from any Natixis investment managers entity. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. All investing involves risk, including the risk of loss. Investment risk exists with equity, fixed income, and alternative investments. There is no assurance that any investment will meet its performance objectives or that losses will be avoided. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. Performance data discussed represents past performance and is no guarantee of, and not necessarily indicative of, future results. Indexes are not investments, do not incur fees and expenses and are not professionally managed. It is not possible to invest directly in an index. This document may contain references to copyrights, indexes and trademarks that may not be registered in all jurisdictions. Third-party registrations are the property of their respective owners and are not affiliated with Natixis Investment Managers or any of its related or affiliated companies. Collectively Natixis, such third-party owners do not sponsor, endorse or participate in the provision of any Natixis services, funds or other financial products. Provided by Natixis Distribution, LLC, 888 Boylston Street, Boston, MA02199. Natixis Investment Managers includes all of the investment management and distribution entities affiliated with Natixis Distribution, LLC and Natixis Investment Managers SA. Natixis Distribution, LLC is a limited-purpose broker-dealer and the distributor of various registered investment companies for which advisory services are provided by affiliates of Natixis Investment Managers. Natixis Advisors, LLC provides advisory services through its division Natixis Investment Manager Solutions. Advisory services are generally provided with the assistance of model portfolio providers, some of which are affiliates of Natixis Investment Managers. LLC Natixis Advisors. LLC does not provide tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax or legal professional prior to making any investment decision. Member SIPC, POD 37 June. 2023, Adtrax 5731329, 1, 1, expiration date, January 31, 2024.